Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. I'm Alistair Funge, Space Policy and Operations Engineer. I'm Robbie Boundy, founder of Space Impulse. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. It's, it's interesting. If you know exactly where it is that you, what you were looking for, yeah. you go in, you find that box, you take the box, you photograph that one document that you want, you put, the, put it back and you leave. But if hmm. you don't know that something exists to ask for it, you hmm. won't find it. But if you're doing this random shotgun effect thing, you will come up with random thing that I didn't even know this was a thing. So it can, if you have the time, right. it actually works out very nicely. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I am Jason Canigan, the founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm. And I'm here with the one and only Nicholas Moran, also known as the Chieftain. Hey, I am super excited to have you on. We've been waiting, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks, something like that. And it, it is the evening, your kids are around, and if they come running in, well, folks, we're just going to have to put up they with it. And in, I am really excited to be able to have you on. So, oh, um, those of you who have watched or listened to the episode with Andy Aldrin and myself talking about how the Soviets beat the Americans into space, and also my episode on uh, how Albert Kahn brought mass production to the Soviets, uh, that is the link up to how I found Nick here. And he did a, an episode on the development of the Soviet tank doctrine. Now, what is this doing on a space show? <laughs> all these things tie together, at least in my mind they do, uh, because they're all about how were the Soviets thinking and what did they have to work with? And if you were to listen to these three episodes, uh, you know, the, the Albert Kahn one, uh, Dr. Andy Aldrin's episode with me on uh, beating the Soviets into space and Nicholas's tank doctrine episode here, you will really get a good picture of what their mindset was like at the time. And so I thought, aha, I, I've got to have Nicholas on. And of course I have watched um, a rather stupid amount of your content. <laughs> you, you, Nicholas here has- yeah, um, Your wife's there. You, you're watching Pike Point again. <laughs> yes. So, so Nicholas here has a fascinating role. He, he's uh, been very interested in wargaming, but he was actually a tanker himself. And I'll get you to explain that in a moment. Um, but he works for World of Tanks, which is a video game. And they send him around to research all these tanks. And I was just talking to somebody about you before I came back to do this interview and they were really excited. They never heard of such a thing and thought it was uh, probably the best job in the world. And I said, well, you will, yeah. you will have no idea how many people say they want my job. Uh, right. Th there are maybe three of us to do this. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. There's myself. There's, I have a European counterpart by the name of Richard Cutland. Uh, he works for Wargaming Europe. I work for Wargaming right. America, both of whom manufacture World of Tanks and World of Warships and mm -hmm. uh, a few other products. Uh, so he goes by the name of the Challenger, and he mm. does more or less very similar to what I do for wargaming, uh, researching in the local archives. So I obviously take care of the National Archives in uh, Maryland. And I've gone to other archives as necessary. I've gone to the regional archives, for example, in Chicago, hoping to find for the Detroit tank arsenal, only to discover the TACOM archives are actually kept so, to somewhere totally different, and they won't tell me where. Mm. Um, the American National Archives are actually a bit of a mess. I don't know yes. if you've ever tried bouncing around at least the tank section is a bit of a mess the i have not but section. i have listened to you talk about it and uh, <laughs> it is difficult and, and i also heard you mention there's a japanese counterpart to yourself there was uh, yeah. tadamasa mikiyama what's his name uh, he decided uh, not too long ago he was going to uh, resign his position and focus on his family so he, got, he recently got married had a kid and he left tokyo and he moved to a quieter part of the country mm. and i've only ever been to tokyo once it's a hell of a town i couldn't live there then again <laughs> i couldn't live in new york city I, I spent three months living in queens and yeah. it i felt like an ant it's not for me so here's me in tokyo i'm on top of one of the hotel towers having dinner and i'm looking at over the vista of tokyo and they're going if i wanted to open an office where would I even start looking for a real estate agent out of all mm. this as far as the eye can see office buildings? Uh, but uh, anyway, so that's that too much. Was the other one. Most <laughs> right. other video game companies, when they get a, an expert on, a military expert, is a contract position. So hmm. let's say Call of Duty for pulling a name out, out of my arse, and I don't know if they do or not, but let's say Call of Duty are going to make a new video game. They hire a military expert for the duration of the development process and then once it's developed they have no further need from the contract is mm -hmm. ended 
but because World of Tanks is a persistent online game, it's not just a um, it's not just a buy once and you're done. Uh, there is an argument that uh, they they want to have continued engagement. Mm-hmm. So what I do is not only do I go around and do research on, on things, but uh, I also just provide information, good, solid, non-game related information from people. If you play a game like World of Tanks, you are probably interested in tanks in general. Mm-hmm. And so if I put out good information, they will come to the channel and they will learn good information. And by the way, they're also coming back to our channel. So it's, it's right. a form of marketing. And also it reaches out to people who aren't necessarily gamers. Uh, a, a lot of people who aren't gamers will come across uh, my lectures or Richard's videos, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they will be brought into our ecosphere that way. So it's good old fashioned evil capitalism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, it's, uh, but it works and uh, it's, it's sort of a win-win. Our, our relationship with museums uh, has been interesting mm. because it, um, a, the, as a game itself, it's fun but it's not necessarily realistic. Right. I don't know if you play. Right. I do not, but I I do know the difference. And I've heard you talk about uh, Steel (laughs) Beasts as being like the the ultimate in reality, click the switch to open the hatch and all that. But it's not fun, (laughs) you know, except unless you're a real tanker, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's always that, that, yeah, that sort of swinging back and forth between fun gameplay versus historical accuracy. And you yourself were a tanker. Uh, you, You were a major. Uh, tell I us a little yes. bit about that for a second. Uh, I, I started off my military career in the Irish Army Reserves, the, uh, the 11th Cavalry Squadron, FCA, also known as the Pedaling Panzers, uh, because it was originally stood up as a bicycle regiment. Ah. Um, after three years, I came to the U.S. and decided that showing up for training over the Atlantic was a bit difficult and uh, joined the U.S. military. Uh, thought it might be more fun. You know, bigger toys. No, I'm still yelling bang and throwing sticks, <laughs> pretending like they're hand grenades. So that didn't work out well. I joined the California National Guard, commissioned, went to Iraq in a tank, went to Afghanistan driving a desk, uh, commanded a troop of Bradleys for a few years, and I'm driving a desk again, pending, you know, wherever I go next, probably another desk. Right. You get promoted enough times, you don't have fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. But at, at least compared to most officers, at least got some fun. Because if you're an engineering officer, it's kind of like, Sergeant, blow up that bridge. Mm. Or if you're an infantry officer, it's uh, Corporal, fire the anti-tank missile at that tank. Uh, but aviation and tanks, you actually are part of the weapon system. Uh, mm. you, you, you go with everybody. You don't send anybody. You are there. Right. And I know infantry guys will argue the point, but ultimately mm. you're directing your squads. You're not pulling your trigger yourself too much. Huh. That's a theory. Well, I, I have learned a tremendous amount more about tanks than I ever thought I would I would ever learn by watching your we'll videos. Have space tanks eventually. Yeah. Eventually, they'll be called something else, probably. But uh, but you you go and you you go to museums, you find these tanks, you get inside them, you you do walk around, you go inside. Um, I've learned more about how lousy the human factors or ergonomics were of some of these early tanks, and I'm always watching you bang your shins because you you have this thing where you have to climb out of one of the hatches of the tank as fast as possible (laughs) nobody ever talks about that Uh, yeah (laughs) museums have had an interesting relationship with us Uh, initially it was a case of why do we want to talk to you 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 make a mockery of real life but then they realized well we're bringing people Hmm. because you know if you're especially in the german museum you know war is Hmm. a serious business uh and it's not just our game. There have been the, the, the merits of making entertainment out of what is one of humanity's most horrible actions mm-hmm. is long been debated. And you can mm-hmm. say that for movies, you can say that for video games, you can say that even for fiction books. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, what they eventually realized though is that we were attracting a new audience uh, who, are, who are now mm-hmm. coming to the museum and learning the real thing. And they're also paying the admission fees for the museum right. when they need money. Right. And we'll see the same thing for model makers. So the you know, scale models they have in the background here, all of a sudden, ever since World of Tanks came out, a whole slew of new kits came mm. out that most people had never, you know, never knew that the real tank existed. Again, mm. it's, it's just sort of synergy between the, the audience and the rest of the industry that's around armored vehicles. Right, right. And, but, and, and this I is at least them. your fifth year in the role. Um, uh, nine. Yeah. Nine, yeah. So it's been, they've committed 
because uh, I, I know because I've watched lectures of yours that ended up on C-SPAN 3 uh, from 2015 and there's women in the audience, there's kids in the audience, it's not just a bunch of aging males <laughs> who you appeal yeah, to. the majority, so, but yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so I mean, my, my, my audience is 98% male mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, generally speaking, 25 to 25 to 55. Mm. All so, right. Not well, many kids. I fit right in there. But I have seen them. I have seen young people in the audience. So, um, so why I wanted you on especially was uh, this Tank Doctrine video really got my, my interest because you've done them for, um, and this is, this is interwar period. How, people were just figuring out how do we use these new tools. Um, and we were imagining how we're going to use them before we actually go out and use them. And then, so you did one for the Italians, the French. So, some, some countries reverse that. So the Soviets, <laughs> def, the, the mm. Soviets went and they bought the tanks before they settled on their, on their yes. solution. Whereas other countries, they try to come up with like the U.S. particularly mm -hmm. because the U.S. had no money for tanks at all. Mm. So all they could do was a theoretical analysis before finally World War II kicks off and go, okay, guys, turn on the taps. Right. There was not a lot of congressional funding for uh, war material and products during the not interwar the period 30s, in the U.S. We, this we, is we bought like something like 40 tanks between 1920. Twenty-nine and actually even even earlier, nineteen twenty-three to nineteen thirty-eight was forty tanks were purchased, maybe mm -hmm. if that. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to this earlier. The the tank records in the United States are not that good. If you want to find airplane or naval records, they seem to be almost pristine. You could take the diagrams of the blueprints to a shipyard and have them make the thing. But the tanks, the stuff is a mess. And, and we'll get into that in a minute. But when I saw that you had done a Soviet doctrine video, I thought, where the heck did you get the information to do that? Um, so I thought we would begin with this question. Um, your job not, not only is to crawl around on tanks and the fun side of things and that, but you, you have to research and you must grade evidence. And I think that that's going to be important to this audience here. So what represents good evidence to you? How do you know it when you see it? What are, what are the sort of the signals? Um, when you deal with something that's as popularly known as tanks, mm. uh, there is a heck of a lot of information out there. And uh, there, there are some channels, for example, all they do is just put up some pictures and then read the Wikipedia entry. Well, actually, Wiki isn't the worst place to start for this sort of thing. If nothing else, go down to the footnotes and start doing the links. Uh, but uh, when it, since I mainly deal with the technical development more than the operational development, uh, I go to National Archives as step one because there's nothing better than the original source documentation written or typed you know, 80 years ago, and you're the first person to actually bother to open up that box ever since. I, can, I, I feel pity for the poor person with the old mechanical typewriters typing all this stuff out that nobody is ever, ever going to use. <laughs> right. I mean, if you ever want to learn, as, as I said in one video, about the effects of mold on right. rubber in the Pacific area, there's boxes of material out there that's already been studied, and it's freely available because it's you know, done at taxpayers' expense in the archives. Um, but uh, the catch with that is that not all documentation was retained mm -hmm. uh, due to, I'll just call it a lack of emphasis. Uh, the practical realities in 1948, 1950, or especially once 1950 hit, is that we have mounds and mounds of paper sitting in storage, and we only have so much storage room. Mm -hmm. And look, there's a new war that just started. We need, to make, we need to get information from this new war. What do we do with all this stuff? Get rid of it, burn it, whatever. And, and they, they had to burn it because a lot of it was still classified. So to a large extent, part, part of the reason that we have a lot of the material we have is that some folks, they took it to be burned maybe, <laughs> and then they put it in their basement. Mm. And 40 years later, it surfaces and we're getting these original documents again. Uh, if I can't find the original archive material, then the operator's manual usually is mm -hmm. pretty good, you know, pretty reliable. Uh, then, then you start getting down into, it, it basically does become second, uh, secondhand sources, secondary sources. And there's no, no, it's no two ways about that, especially if you don't speak the language of the country that you're researching. So the only language I speak is French, mm -hmm. at least good enough to do, to, to do work with. So for the Soviets, I had to look at secondary source information, do the review or read the reviews 
get assessments from other people. So for example, Steve Zaloga, who speaks Russian, uh, ha is famous for doing a lot of Russian books. And I thought, hey, look, what do I want to talk? You know, who do I want to look up? What do I want to talk to? Uh, and that's how I got pointed to a couple of different books. So uh, Storm of Steel was written by, I mean, I, I can't, you can look it up. It's Storm of yeah. Steel, the development of German and Soviet tank uh, doctrine in the interwar period. Something like that is called. Fantastic book covers both Germany and the Soviets very well. Uh, I have a couple of other books that I had to buy as part of my officer's courses, and it covers a lot of it are, uh, are interwar. So I have, what's this? Military Innovation in the Interwar Period. It's just an analogy by different, uh, different authors. Uh, the Challenge of Change is another one. Again, it's an anthology by different authors, each of whom has their own nation of expertise. Uh, then you start going into situations where there is no, there's nothing that you consider particularly trustworthy. So you are now down to the level of, is it untrustworthy? Uh, sort of, is there reason to doubt this information as opposed to, is there reason to believe it? Because it's the best you got. And if it's wrong, nobody can prove otherwise. So you, you just got to put a little asterisk on here that says the best available information right now seems to be, and then you go. That way you have your, your, you have your bases covered. Because something I have learned over nine years doing this is to be very, very careful to make a definitive statement. Mm. Uh, especially if you say, oh, this never happened, or they never thought of that. Or, mm. uh, because three years later, somebody on the internet is gonna drag up this comment and right. say, aha, I have found evidence that. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay. And Nicholas was wrong. And therefore, you must throw out everything that he has ever said. <laughs> Basically, I mean, I, I do try to be fairly honest. I mean, if, so, if somebody calls me out and somebody says I was wrong, I will try, you know, my Q&A videos once a month, right. I'll try to bring up, look, in the last month I said, mm -hmm. here is something that this person said, make of it what you will. Yeah. And your commitment to those is really admirable. I've watched you do those when you were tired. <laughs> <laughs> One in the morning. But again, you got the, you got the two-year-old kid. You know, right. <laughs> what choice have you? Right. We mentioned the National Archives at College Park there. Let's, let's give a quick picture of what it's like to go in this place because I don't think people, I certainly have never even heard of it before uh, finding your, your article on it and, and listening to you talk a little bit about it. Our, the National Archives is split up into the main building, which is uh, in College Park, Maryland, and there are other South Louds. It's actually NARA 2 is the one in Maryland. NARA 1 is, uh, is right. in D.C and they have an entirely different set of documents. But mm. uh, for, for the modern period, generally speaking, you're looking at narrow two. And as I say, they're rather regional centers. So I've been to the one in Illinois, so you know, like 40 minute bus ride outside of Chicago, that sort of thing. And although I have to say that the army section, or at least my part of the army section that I dig into was a mess, that is not to reflect upon the, the nature of the archives in general. Now comparing mm. how NARA works with, let's say the British National Archives in Kew, NARA US is far better, far, far more user-friendly. So you have to show up, allot yourself a couple of hours uh, when you show up to register yourself. Hmm. Uh, so you have, to, you have to get your uh, research card, you have to take a course of instruction, it's, it's maybe half an hour long, on how the place operates and what the rules and regulations are. You get inspected going in to make sure you're not bringing anything like pens, hmm. which could permanently damage anything. And you also, when you leave, you will, be, you will be searched, basically, to make sure that you're not trying to sneak anything out. Okay, that's fair. You're allowed to bring one book and one, you know, one reference book and one flatbed scanner. And that reference book will be stamped to make sure that they know it's one that you brought in, it's not an archive document. You then have to hop in and they have to, uh, they do what's called pulls. So every, every hour, well, in the morning, it's like every hour to get people going. And then in the afternoon, it turns like in every two hours or three hours. And you fill out a piece of paper that says, I want this, this record, this box. And you're allowed up to like 48 boxes at once. You're only allowed oh. to have in your hands 24. But they, they will put 48 boxes plus a few extra on huge carts. Okay. And they'll keep them in the back until you're ready to take one of those two carts <laughs> or three carts. 
so you have to go to the finding room and there is what's called the finding eight. And it's basically a catalog of what is in the archives. So you go, you go to the finding aid. There are people who will help you. Uh, hey, in my case, I'm looking for Ordnance Department records, mm -hmm. U.S. Army, 94. And the guy will say, that finding aid over there, try this one, try this one. He'll pull them down and he'll, you'll sit down and you can start going through the catalog. Now, oftentimes, at least for my records, the, uh, the boxes are very generic. Mm -hmm. uh, activities of the general commanding U.S. Army Grand Forces. You can imagine that the general commanding U.S. Grand Forces had a lot of different activities going on. So uh, th there's nothing for it. Sometimes there is a supplementary finding aid that somebody who has been through the records before has handwritten. This is what is in this box, and sometimes not. So it's just down to a shotgun effect. I'll, I'll just pick these 48, the first 48 boxes, and I did this for most of the uh, most of the ordnance branch records. First 48 boxes, bring them all, and then you just start opening up and seeing what you got. And if you got lucky, then great. If you didn't, then you just put them all back in, put the card back, get the next card out. And even if there's nothing of interest, there are so many boxes and so many files that chances are, especially if you're keeping track of what was in what box, uh, that it will be time for the next pull. Oh, uh, okay. They are absolutely rigid about when you hmm. fill in that form. If hmm. you are one second late, you've just lost an hour. You can <laughs> so go sit on your butt for an hour then and wait till the Basically, next one. Yeah. Wow. Um, there is there is a classified section. If you need to get into the classified section, you have to have your security clearance verified. You will then be allowed up to the sixth floor. Uh, again, you know, as, as in any secure area, you leave your uh, you leave your pen, paper, cell phone, anything like that. You go in, and they will provide you with a pencil and a scrap of paper that you can take notes. So, you know, I go up, I request some boxes that were classified. Why they're classified 80 years later, I have no idea. Um, I, my only thought is that nobody thought to declassify them. Mm -hmm. and, and the irony was that the box that I wanted to scan was already in the public domain because somebody had leaked it or, or a different archive had declassified it or whatever it was. Uh, so I now know which box I want. I have to go downstairs. I fill out a Freedom of Information request. That gets submitted, it takes a few weeks, and then for my next trip back, mm. I, I can now request, because they've moved from the sixth floor, this box down to the, down to the third floor, and I can now access the, uh, the document with my scanner mm -hmm. <laughs> and scan the document, so it's, it's a little bit convoluted. Right. Uh, but wow. the people, are, they're strict, they're, they're very strict about all the regulations, but they are helpful. Mm. Uh, there, there, there's nobody there on a power trip. It's a case right. of you, you need to have that declassified sticker visible on your scanner. I'm sorry. And sometimes, you know, hey, you're handling photographs. You must wear the white gloves that we're mm. providing. And, and as I say, they're, they're very strict about it, but very, but very friendly and helpful. Huh. Well, I, was... I do recommend you are in the area. Check it yeah. out. If you do have an interest, it, it is user friendly. The guys in England that say you know, you're only allowed to take one or two boxes out at once. Mm. Uh, it, it seems like, and there's a limit as to how many boxes you can take a day. For the National Archives, the only limit is how many you can basically get through mm -hmm. in the amount of time. Hmm. Well, that, that gave us a really good picture. And I think you got to bring a quarter for a locker, I think you said in, in yes. one thing. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want people to go in there and wait the two hours and then find out they need this quarter. Uh, so so you're, you're pulling boxes. You don't know what you're going to get. It's probably going to be mold tests it's, and uh, it's, maybe it's, it's something it good. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. If you know exactly where it is that you, what you were looking for, yeah. You go in, you find that box, you take the box, you photograph that one document that you want, you put, the, put it back and you leave. But if hmm. you don't know that something exists to ask for it, you hmm. won't find it. But if you're doing this random shotgun effect thing, you will come up with random things that I didn't even know this was a thing. So it can't, if you have the time, right. it actually works out very nicely. Right. And, and you will go and spend 12 hours in there and not eat any lunch. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, yeah. I, I value my time much more than some people I work with <laughs> who mm. insist on their lunch break or, oh, union mm. rules. No, I'm doing yeah. some video, uh, video work. Union rules, I must get a lunch break. But, but we're missing this. No, 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 lunch break. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, we just lost uh, two hours. for a week at a time. Yeah, yeah. basically. Huh. Or what, that what? thing that happened will never happen again. Yeah. Mm. Okay. 
What, what is the most surprising thing that, that you can remember right now that you've pulled out of a box? That you went, wow, I didn't know this would be in here. Well, the, 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 the main one right now is the naming documents. So it's uh, mm, various mm. American tanks and names mm -hmm. like Sherman, and, right. which everybody knows the British came up with Sherman. And the, the Americans did not come up with Sherman. It turns out they actually did. Ordnance Branch did adopt it as a name or General Jackson for the M36 or Wolverine for the M10. Now that one I still have not found any evidence for. Hmm. Uh, but uh, there's, oh, the model manufacturers came up with General Jackson. I mean, no, no, look, I've got this document from 1944 that says General Jackson on it. and It will be the name. Uh, so it, it's sort of a, an unofficial official nickname is what it actually is. So uh, Ordnance Branch said, this isn't the official name for the vehicle, but we're going to call this this name mm -hmm. in our <laughs> PR releases, in our press releases. Mm. Uh, so that settled a very long running debate in the armored community. But there's all sorts of bizarre things in there, like uh, air, you know, uh, tanks that are turned into gliders, uh, full, you know, tests of folding bicycles, car or trucks that run on actually drive on water. Now, we're not talking about amphibious trucks. Yeah. We're talking about trucks with huge inflatable wheels hmm. that drive on the water. <laughs> um, there are, what else are we finding? There was some guy that decided to make a tank destroyer out of steam pipe. And he, fitted, he tied the two steam pipes. Uh, look, uh, the, the, the article I wrote was Colonel Zerbe's TD, Z-E-R-B-E-E. And of course, the ridiculous amounts of information that is of no use to anybody anymore, right. such as the, the effect of mold on rubber. <laughs> okay. One thing I noticed your frustration with, and I think I would have the same thing, is that as you're looking through and trying to sort of trace the course of events, sometimes you'll find that the, uh, the, the purchasing department will have one numbering system, the project management will have another, you know, if, if you could jump back in time to 1930, let's say, and change one thing about how the Department of the Army or the Bureau of Ordnance do what they do and follow that out through the next two or three decades, what would it be? Oddly enough, the Army asked the same question. Uh, so I, I'm actually currently going through, I'm writing out an article, which I'm probably going to put up next week, uh, about how Army Ground Forces work with the Army Service Forces and the technical departments mm -hmm. in, and the processes for requesting, developing, approving, and then purchasing different types of vehicles. I'm looking at all the different committees that are here. Going, mm -hmm. and, and the Army document is saying this was an unnecessary duplication of effort to do this process. So they, we're not talking about the numbering system where... You know, this piece of equipment is given this project number in, you know, in armored forces, that project number in uh, ordnance branch. That, that's, that, that can be solved fairly quickly by a simple table, you know, cross-reference uh, cross table. Uh, but it was more the matter of parochialism. Uh, so, oh, we're armored force, so we must have a say in any armored vehicles. Whilst tank destroyer force are going, well, no, it's got tracks, it's fast, and it's got a gun. We have to have a say. And it would be a case that you take this prototype vehicle that was built and they'll send it to Armored Force and the Armored Force will test it and that they'll take maybe two months to test it. And then they'd send it to TD branch and then take two months to test it. Oh, this can also be used as an artillery piece. So they send it to artillery <laughs> branch and they'll test it. And then once it has gone around all the different agencies, it'll come back and then they'll, they'll make a decision to approve or disapprove. And, uh, you know, obviously ordinance are going, this is stupid. Pick one lead agency. And what, if you are really that interested, send an observer. But the branches in the, in the early U.S. Army in World War II were extremely controlling. Uh, and it was almost like, and, and this was not unique to the U.S., it was almost like their, uh, their own careers or existence were in jeopardy if they let somebody else have control. Or if they, mm -hmm. if they uh, not, not if that had, if they... If they made it, if they let their position become optional, I think it might be a better way of putting it. Okay. Uh, they, they had to be part of the system in order to maintain relevance. Hmm. I, I think that was the way that worked out. So it wasn't, it truly wasn't sorted out until 1945. Hmm. It, it took that long to get. So if you could get rid of that kind of emotional involvement, that might th make things better? That was probably the, the single biggest thing. And again, it predates World War II. So for example, mm -hmm. and, and this, 
it was a congressional law, but I strongly suspect that there were there were people inside the branches pushing for it. That in, in the interwar period, the cavalry could not have tanks. The infantry controlled tanks. So if you're a tanker, you're branch infantry. And if you look at a, a tank of 1936-37, a tank tank, it will have the crossed muskets of the infantry branch on the side. But you look at a cavalry vehicle and it's got, it's armored, it's got tracks, it's got a turret, it's got a gun. It's supposed to engage in direct fire and maneuver, but it's not a tank. It's a <laughs> combat car. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll and, just and change the name they just change <laughs> to, to classify it differently. Yeah. Huh. Remind, remind me, what state are you in? <laughs> I'm in North Carolina. Oh, you, okay. So I, I thought, you know, being spacey, you might be in California. Um, California has some interesting firearms laws, which mm. all you do is you just change the name to firearm and you're legal. So I, I, have, <laughs> I have a couple of firearms that way. I so. see. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And that's exactly what happened. So when Armored Force was created, they took the infantry branch tanks and they took the uh, the combat cars, cars. from cavalry and they just said, right, draw bloody tanks. Oh, oh, we got a combat car M1 and a combat car uh, and a tank M1. Okay, the, the combat car M1 is now the tank M1A2. And it's mm -hmm. got no similarity whatsoever. And I think for, for people, that the, the N series of nomenclature is probably the most confusing. So uh, there's a meme going around. It's like, uh, you're complaining about your M3. And you don't know if you mean the M3 helmet, the M3 grease gun, the M3 rifle, the M3 scout car, the M3 half track, the M3 75 millimeter gun, the M3 76 millimeter gun, the, the M3 bayonet, the M3 helmet. Uh, they're all called M3 because of the way that the army designated each individual type of equipment. Uh, definitely some room for improvement there. <laughs> well, let's, let's finish up with a, a segment on uh, you crawling around on tanks and, and inside tanks. Uh, you, you mentioned that sometimes to help the game model designers out, you will tape off squares of outer surfaces of, of, of armored fighting vehicles and then take pictures of it. And, and uh, I, I need help filling in the blank between how that helps and they take that information and create something out of it. But tell me how that works. It, well, okay, so the, the vehicle, particularly in question, although the M7 medium was also a case, is called the T-54E1. Mm -hmm. And it was an obscure prototype tank that the US mm -hmm. came up with. And the, f the only photographs that were commonly available uh, were black and white, not the greatest quality uh, in, a, in a book by Richard Honeycutt. Mm -hmm. And there are also planned drawings, actual planned drawings, but, okay. but curves don't really come out on a two-dimensional planned drawing. Right, and, and Honeycutt is good, by the way, folks, for who don't know anything about this. Honeycutt is one of those sort of manual, like Jane's fighting ship sort of things, as I understand yeah. it. And I'll put in a plug for my own book, Can Openers, which I tried to do <laughs> in the in the Honeycutt vein. Okay. Uh, and that, that was material I found in the archives that I realized wasn't published. So I just uh, put it aside. And I could put a link to book. that if that's out, because I think I heard you talking about it in a previous uh, episode, yeah, it's, of course, it's but I didn't realize it was out. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so they have these photographs and have pretty accurate two-dimensional plans. Mm -hmm. And using these plans and what they can make of the photographs, the 3D modelers in, in, uh, for World of Tanks created their T-54E1. And mm -hmm. you know, after, after, after this, I can send you some images if you want sure. to pop them up. Yeah. Yeah. And the, my problem was I had physically seen this tank, I had measured it, and I'm looking at it, at the model, and I know in my mind, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. How do I tell these guys that it's wrong? So I, I, had taken, I had taken some photographs while I was on the vehicle. So I sent them the better photographs and said, look, you see, this is what it actually looks like. Yeah. Note how it's, and the other problem was because it was a very matte paint, you hmm. couldn't actually visually discern the curves or anything. It was just kind of like a solid mass of green with no curves at all, there was no form. So I sent that over and they did a bit of work and they came back a little bit better. And I should also say that Dragon, a, a uh, model manufacturer, released a model, announced 
a T fifty four E one model kit. Again, this is water tanks, advertising new tanks. Oh, people want to get get a model of this vehicle. And the initial drawings that they released were exactly the same as the three D model that our three D modelers had created. So either they made exactly the same mistake as our three D modelers, or they just took our three D modelers blueprint copied that. Uh, I, I'm not going to make any statements as to which of the two it was, although I have my suspicions. Uh, so the only way I could think of to um, uh, to get this the image across to these people who two, you know who are six thousand miles away is contour lines, basically. So just like on a map, okay. terrain elevation contour lines that are all squiggles, and you know just by looking at how the curves are of this mm. straight line, well, straight line horizontally. You know what the terrain actually looks like in three-dimensional shape. I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. you have a limit of fidelity. It's a contour line every one meter, is it every ten meters, whatever? But you get the idea. So I went to Home Depot. I got a bunch of uh, white masking tape. I started climbing around the tank and I started putting, as best I could, in the in the short amount of time I had available, straight lines parallel to each other. If you were looking straight down from above. Okay. But if you look at it from an angle or whatever, you see they look completely different. Right. So by doing this crosshatch, it wasn't perfect because as I said, it wasn't there with right angles when it was just mm -hmm. me literally climbing on the tank, then tape. But it was far and away the easiest way to get this three-dimensional shape across on a two-dimensional image mm -hmm. that I could then email to the, the graphics designers who then, who then able to correctly model at least 99% there, uh, the T-54 we want. And I also noticed by sheer coincidence that Dragon also changed their kit <laughs> to, to look a little bit better. So maybe there's a leak? I don't know. <laughs> but how locked down is that information that you get for World of Tanks? Do they share it? Do they lock it off and say, that's ours, we paid for it? Um, I'm not going to say it's locked down. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, a bad, I'm a bad academic. <laughs> I do not, I, I often do not cite sources or anything else mm -hmm. like that. And because most of my, most of my documentation comes from the archives. So I mean, if I cite the source, what of it? I mean, mm -hmm. Unless you physically go to NARA and you go to record group 156A section 35 series entry 1391 alpha box 42, it doesn't do you any good anyway. Mm -hmm. But if somebody asks me, do you have evidence of this? I will always send them a scan of the document. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's public information. It's paid for by the taxpayer. Yes, there is an argument that because we took the effort to go and we spent the money that we should have the rights to sell, you know, to sell the access as a service. Um, but we've already got our value out of it. We got mm -hmm. what we wanted. So it, I don't see if it's any great need. So uh, what I've actually started doing is I'm sending some of the stuff straight to the armor collection in ah. uh, Port Benin. Uh, that, uh, just in case they don't have, they may have, they may have a lot of it, but I'm sending it to them anyway. And doing anything else. Um, the stuff that is obtained in other sources like the Russian archives, they're a little bit tighter about it. And we, there have been discussions as to just what we're going to do with it. But the other question is, if we were to make it public, how would you actually go about it? Mm. I mean, do you, you just do a, fold, a huge folder dump? Because then you've got to go through the expense of cataloging, Mm -hmm. uh, identifying. So, so a problem that the British Tank Museum have is they, they have a huge collection of photographs which they would like to digitize, but oftentimes the photographs have no captions or yeah. you don't know quite what category it goes under. And the amount of man hours and work, I mean, they, they could in theory just digitize a whole lot and dump it into the public and good luck. Uh, you, 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 you Yeah, you, you may not realize that you want file number 003-24JPG, but that's what you want. And, and I think that, that's that's going to be part of the problem that we have with the uh, with the Russian stuff as well. Now yeah. that said, also a lot a lot of the Russian stuff is also being turned into books, like I did with uh, with can openers. So I have mm -hmm. on the shelf behind me some some books actually published by World of Tanks. Mm -hmm. uh, so can openers is is a World of Tanks book, mm -hmm. but inside it's pure. Yeah, you know, pure research material. Right. And so we've done the same with some of the Russian stuff that has been translated. And that is some of the best information you're going to find on that subject around because it is heavily researched and it's brand new. And it's researched by Russians, mm. which of course is a, is a big problem for a lot of Americans, especially these days, 
want to go into the Russian archives, David Glantz managed to do it mm -hmm. for, for a fair bit for the operational stuff. David Glantz yeah. is probably the go-to man for the Eastern Front mm -hmm. operationally. But when it comes to just digging in the technical, uh, the technical archives in Russia, you, you pretty much have to be a Russian to do it. And so these guys have done it and they started publishing books and selling it. Well, why not? So it, it's, not, it's not being purely kept secret. What we actually do with it, again, right now we're not dumping it in the open, but it is getting out, especially if you ask. Okay, well, that's cool. And, and World of Tanks kind of got first mover advantage with it. Uh, you know, they got to use it first. Um, so there is good value there. I'm going to check your, your book out too. I'll probably link to it in the description below here. Uh, and I mentioned, I, I noticed that you uh, see cases because you're looking at uh, manuals, original manuals and that, and you'll see, okay, an armor thickness is supposed to be this thick, but then you go measure it and you find out it's thicker or thinner, usually thinner, I think, right? Uh, what's the worst case of divergence in armor thickness that you could think of that you've seen? Well, the big one seems to be between eight inches of armor and six inches of armor on the mm. T29. Um, so part of the problem is, and this is annoying hell out of me, is oftentimes the official documents don't agree with each other. Yeah. Even on something as you would think simple and hard and objective as armor thickness. Mm -hmm. And depend, so I go to Honeycutt and I, I, I see Honeycutt says that it must have this. And I go to the archives and I will find the document that he used that says it must have this. But then I go continue my digging, my shotgun effect, and I find another document that says, actually, it has this. Which right. of the two do you use? So then you start thinking, well, what, actually, what am I actually holding? So on one hand, I'm holding a document from the Ordnance Technical Committee. These are the guys in charge of, of simply deciding what they're going to build. And if they're going to build it, how many they're going to build and whether or not it's suitable. And on the other hand, I'm holding a document written by some lieutenant in Aberdeen Proving Ground who has just measured the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with the one that he, that the guy has just measured it. Right. Regardless of what the specifications say that, or, you know, that they should have, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with this. So that goes back to your very original question, how right. do you balance yep. different documents? And I will always go with the measured by the mm -hmm. engineers versus uh, over the manual right although the manual is usually pretty good over, over over other things after that cool so if there's a this is actually what we got document that's better than a this is what we asked for kind of thing oh definitely yeah uh, but e but even then there were some that says oh this you know um ordinance branch will occasionally do project summaries so mm -hmm. this this is something that you know in fairness they do well so they start a project for something it's finished either successfully or it's canceled, either way, they will write a project summary. It's maybe five pages long, five to 10 pages long. And it starts off with, on 13th of December, 1942, a requirement was issued for whatever. Then it talks about, uh, you know, a, on this date, a request for a prototype was created, was sent out to Chrysler to, to produce this thing. And on this date, it arrived in Aberdeen Proving Grants for testing. And on that date, it was found sensitive uh, as correct on that data was found suitable and then it was sent to and then it was sent to uh, armored forces and so, and so on and so forth and then at the very end it says uh due to uh due to greater uh, potential being found in this other piece of equipment mm -hmm. this was cancelled and that was the end of the project report Mm -hmm. So it's a good summary and it lets you know what what happened, where it went right, where it went wrong. Oftentimes, uh, like oh, this vehicle had great difficulty with the suspension. Doesn't go into great detail as to why. Just you know the high, the really high points for somebody who just wants to know why this piece of equipment didn't get off the ground. Okay, well that's neat. Uh, my final question. <laughs> this goes back to the shin banging. <laughs> what? Just off the top of your head, uh, what have been the easiest and the most difficult AFVs to get in and out of with the, the exit hatches for you? There's a difference between the hatches and the positions. Mm. Um, so there are some positions that are absolutely god-awful, mm. but they're very easy to get in and out of. Okay. Uh, versus some which are, uh, so for example, the, uh, 
the Swedish M42 gunner's position on, on, on something like this. Now, granted, I, for people who don't know me, I'm right. six foot five. You're all tall. Which is, right. which is definitely tall for a tanker yeah. and definitely tall for a tanker in World War II. Uh, but I figure if I can fit comfortably in some tanks, then a typical person of the time could fit very comfortably in it. And, you know, somebody who is taller, you know, or sh um, if I don't fit at all, or if I'm somewhat uncomfortable, then somebody who's shorter will be less comfortable than otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, okay, yes, we know ergonomics wasn't a known thing per right. se, but it's still a factor whether you acknowledge the existence of it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's been one of those, my philosophy in these videos that I do is generally being, don't just read out the Wikipedia figures of this much armor and so on. This, this is what it is like to actually crew because the crew are the most important part of the tank. And if they can't efficiently use it, then you have a significant problem. And the right. French tanks in particular are really terrible for this. Hmm. Um, so speaking of French tanks, these one-man turrets, ergonomically, oftentimes they weren't so bad. I mean, I, I would have shoulder room. I, I could sit. I could get in and out of the thing. The problem is I am one man doing everything. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for targets. I'm communicating with other tanks. I'm trying to figure out where I am. I'm constructing the, the gun or where to go. I'm loading the gun. Uh, oh, the driver. I'm loading the gun. I'm aiming the gun. I'm doing everything. Relatively comfortably. But it sucks. And then there's something like the Comet or the FCM 36, where once you're in, it's kind of okay. But good luck getting in and out of that hatch. Again, especially if you're my height. Right. Yeah. Well, and you are tall. I'm six one, and I think I'd be short around you. And then you had a an older fellow on. I think his name was Hillary or something like that. He's about half your size. Yeah. Very very he, he old was. gentleman he, who was he, studying <laughs> tanks since before you and I were born. Since before I was born. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he's a, uh, and he would have been more typical at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. But a, a, again, so there there are human factors studies. So yeah. uh, the British, uh, for example, would assess uh, German tanks, and I've seen their reports. And even they would say something like the loader in the Panther cannot stand at full height because it's only got five foot of three inches of, of room between the floor plate and the roof. So the typical gunner, and again, this is them writing in 1943, 1944, the typical loader cannot stand. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't fit. That's a given. But if the typical person mm -hmm. doesn't fit, you're no, you're no better off, even if you're shorter. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's if you're very five, eight or whatever. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's binary. You you're under the limit or you're over the limit. That's it. Mm. And anything anything over that really is kind of academic. All right. Has there been any tank where you've been in it and you've been like, wow, the crew positions are great, the visibility is good, I can get in there? Usually out. American. Uh, yeah. The okay. Swedes the Swedes have generally been good. The Americans have been very good. Mm. And I think I got spoiled uh, in my American tank when I started going to other countries' tanks and realizing mm -hmm. just how bad or how good the American ones are right. compared to the other nations. And that includes the, the British and the German. The Germans were okay-ish. Uh, they had other problems as opposed to physical space. Hmm. Um, the, the Russians were not the greatest. The French <laughs> were probably the worst. Hmm. Uh, the British were, not, were nothing to write home about either, honestly. Um, but uh, the Americans have always had a very strong emphasis on, uh, on human factors, on usability, and the reports from the time, ergonomics may not have been a thing, but there are lots and lots of reports, like the typical gunner cannot see up the eyepiece without, you know, without extending himself, or the control is for one hand is down here, and the control for the other hand is up here, and this is unsatisfactory. Right. The Americans yeah. are thinking about these things. And, and it does become a, a balance all in all. So mm -hmm. by, by making such a comfortable tank, the Americans also made a very big tank, mm -hmm. which means that it's slightly less armored and it's uh, easier to hit. Right. So it's more efficient, but it's also more vulnerable. And mm -hmm. different nations are going to have different... So you go back to the Soviets. Well, the Soviets live by the offense. They mm -hmm. love attacking in, in their doctrine. And if you're doing that then you want a smaller, tougher tank, and you are more willing to sacrifice crew comfort because you're attacking, so you know what you're gonna get into the tank. So they get into the tank, they're, they're cramped in for maybe an hour or two at most. They charge forward in their smaller vehicles while the defending NATO tanks are bigger because they're sitting in the defensive lines for days at a time waiting for the evil red coming horde to come at them. So they have to be in a larger, more comfortable vehicle, which has absolutely nothing to do with the combat capability per se until you realize how tired or how, oh, my, my muscle is sore. 
and people don't ever think about that. It's always a case of how powerful is the engine? How fast does it go? How, how big is the gun? And history has shown that that's not the, you know, the be all and end all or the, the deciding factor in any right. in any uh, combat situation as demonstrated particularly by world war ii mm -hmm. and it's, it's weird you look at the german everybody talks about the german tanks at the beginning of the war they had on paper the worst tanks mm -hmm. but they had all the victories at the end of the war they had on paper the best tanks and all of the losses hmm. what does that tell you right how you use the tool is important <laughs> Yes, very much so. And also the fine details like, okay, I have a big gun, but I only have one tiny little sight. So hmm. unless my gun is directly pointing at the target, I can't see it. Whereas the Americans have big, big sight up here. They have a sight down here. They got sights everywhere. They can see the target first. And hitting first seems to be the winning uh, stratagem. Basically, you, you, see, yeah. you, see, you see the target first, yeah. you either shoot first or you run away before the other guy shoots you, <laughs> depending on, because you, you, you should, you probably are not going to shoot if you don't think you can win. Hmm. Because otherwise, why attract attention? Right, right. Well, fantastic. I've really enjoyed this, Nicholas. Uh, yeah, not at all. For folks uh, who want to find out more, where should they go? Obviously, your YouTube channel. If you just Google the Chieftain's Hatch, uh, that's kind of like my brand name, mm -hmm. shall we say. So there is a YouTube channel. Um, I have my own YouTube channel. I have separate to the World of Tanks one. Mm -hmm. uh, I, have so I have some unique material on both. Uh, I have written articles, again, on the World of Tanks forum. Right. And uh, if, you, if you like it and you want to play the game, there's usually going to be a link somewhere that says, click here to register, and it'll sign it with me, and it'll, it means that I'm working, and they'll, mm. they'll keep me employed. Um, <laughs> that works for me. Uh, as I say, can openers is on Amazon. Um, right, and you've also got a good online. Facebook page, which I've been enjoying uh, getting an article in my feed every so often. You just put something up, uh, that oddity thing today. Um, I downloaded it about oh, the, uh, different uh, the, equipment. The, the, the dimensions of all the equipment. Mm -hmm. Illustrated yeah, equipment I'm, I'm looking, data, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at equipment that, you know, you know academically the Army has, but mm -hmm. you never think about it. Mm -hmm. And and again, if you're talking about procurement and ordnance branch, you, you, these guys aren't just talking about what's the next tank we're going to build. It's down to the level of do we need to design a new tin opener? <laughs> uh, everything. Oh, are the mittens? Do we need to replace right. the mittens? That that sort of thing. It, it's absolutely overwhelming or astounding the amount of stuff that they have to develop and then ship over. And that's what mm -hmm. my PowerPoint had there. It's going. Oh, I didn't know we had those in the army. <laughs> Well, excellent. Uh, folks, if you want more information, go to the links in the description below. Uh, Nicholas is a great guy. I really appreciate you taking the time from your evening to do this. You didn't have to. Always and, go. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. All right, not at all. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to the Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of the Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.